And we're back, and we've eased on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, and I'm pleased to welcome my next guest, author Daniel Adair. He writes a story. It's a true story, Innocence Lost, the true story of a Vietnam vet. Good morning, Daniel Adair. Good morning, sir. How are you? My pleasure. Tell me your story. Uh, the day before Easter Sunday at the year of 2014, uh, I attempted suicide. And after being diagnosed with PTSD 13 years before that, I had found out that uh, life didn't turn out as well as I expected after my two tours in combat duty in Vietnam, flying a helicopter medevac for 571st dust off in Dubai. After my years of, of uh, raising three children, uh, which were quite old at, or older at the time, my youngest son had uh, got afflicted with the drug called methamphetamine, which he stayed at our house for a period of five years. My wife had uh, separated my bedroom ten years before that. I had found myself in my man cave garage that I had built some years before. As alcoholism and uh, depression, suicidal events uh, had been uh, diagnosed at me at the Gainesville Hospital in, in the state of Florida. At this date and time, uh, under complete depression and knowing that uh, life was not falling in my direction, I had spoke with the Lord several times to make a change in my life and one morning, my wife came out uh, to go to work, which she didn't have to go to work. We were financially quite stable. And I addressed her with the fact that there had to be a change around our house, that we needed to get back to be a family that we once were. And my youngest son, at the age of 35 at the time, needed to get his life together and quit depending on his mommy and daddy to support him which he did not work, he had no ambition to work, and let, and actually lived quite comfortably on, on my paycheck. Well, that afternoon I told her at 6 o'clock that afternoon that uh, I was going to make a decision, and she had to make a decision. I approached the house with him still in there, and uh, we had a slight argument about what was going to take place, and she disagreed with mine and exited the house with him to uh, go wherever I have no idea, and more or less told me that uh, things were going to go into the way she's seen things and nothing would change. At that time, I'd already made up my mind that I could no longer live in the condition I was in uh, being uh, uh, in constant memory of, of uh, the soldiers that I had seen uh, dislocated while in, in Vietnam and flashbacks of things uh, that I had seen, plus the, uh, let's say, rejection of the people in the United States that this 
believed in the war, and some way or another, this stuff builds upon you. I, at this time, uh, placed a revolver under my chin and pulled the trigger. Two, one shot was fired, but it exited through the, the upper part of my nose, which put two bullet holes in my head. At this time, I started bleeding quite profusely and for some odd reason tried to hide the gun, which I did, and walked out on my uh, front porch and there were two Marion County Sheriff's Department officers on both sides of my house with uh, 12 gauge pump shotguns waiting on me. After EMS had showed up and I was uh, at first going to be evacuated with helicopter medevac, they decided that the condition was far worse than what they had first assumed and I was uh, EMS to Monroe Regional Medical Center located in Marion County and ran through a CAT scan. After the CAT scan was over, the doctor told me that he would not, uh, I was still conscious, I, I remember everything that took place. The doctor told me that uh, he would not operate, that nature would do a better job than he could. I was then placed in the recovery room for two days and uh, the first couple hours I was in there, I was met by three police officers from the town of Dunelm, which I'm in right now, that came over and read me my Miranda rights. Well, I had all kind of IVs in me and everything else, plus the two holes in my head. And the next day I woke up and, uh, of course, I started uh, trying to regroup and whatever. And I was transferred downstairs to another room. After that, I was uh, sent to a recovery center for six weeks. And after the six weeks of psychiatric treatment in there, I was dismissed as being uh, okay. As I approached the glass sliding door to exit out of the center, there were two Marion County Sheriff officers uh, awaiting me there, which placed me against the wall, frisked me, handcuffed me, and put me in the back of the patrol car. I asked them at this time, why are you and what are you doing? They said, we are taking you to jail. I said, for what reason? They said probable causes. Probable causes is a made-up uh, sentence which they actually had no sense at all to put me in jail. After that, the next morning, uh, in the 24-hour period, according to the law, I was put in front of the uh, uh, first appearance judge. After uh, going to him and seeing him, through a TV screen, I was handcuffed on the ankles, uh, around my wrist, everything else. He uh, approached me in an attitude of I was some type of uh, assassin or a someone that was dangerous to the, the outside uh, uh, population. 
At that time, my wife and my youngest son had showed up, and she handed Judge a handwritten note, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, Mr. Adair, I think you're going to be with us for a long time. At that point in time, he asked me what would I like to have to defend myself, a lawyer or a public defender. At that time, without knowing my income or anything else, my wife stood up and said, we cannot afford a lawyer. We have to have a public defender. He, he then looked at me and said, a public defender it will be. Take Mr. Adair back to his cell. When I went back to my cell, which was a holding cell 10 foot by 10 foot, I was placed in, a, in the room with three other inmates, which was a commode, a sink, and one inmate was actually laying on the floor. A 10 by 10 foot room is a very small room for four people to be in. I stayed in that room for four and a half months, uh, being seen daily by a psychiatrist and forced to take drugs that I did not agree to take. And we received two showers a week, one on a Tuesday, one on a Saturday, 10 minutes on each day, not every day. We had uh, time to go outside of the cell and see the sunlight. Uh, approaching the day, and at one particular time, after well, after two months of being in the cell, my public defender actually seen me over a video and told me that she was going to represent me. Well, that get, that got my high hopes up. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't see her for another month, which put three months on my term in there. And at that particular time, uh, I was offered a plea bargain of 15 years, second-degree felony, no contact with my family, and probational uh, services during the whole time, which consisted of $52 a month. And I was drug tested and, and urinated tested, all the other stuff. But during this time in the cell, which I was, uh, which they, why they didn't send me to the VA, I have no idea. I had actually seen uh, uh, a man come in. They placed him in a wheelchair, put uh, a black cloth over his head, strapped him down to the arm. Uh, the guards were laughing at him like this was a big joke. During the meantime, in this cell, after some time, I could not read because I did require glasses that they would not give me. I was fed through a steel door along with the others with a styrofoam plate with no eating utensils or anything else. We were ordered to buy the inmates, which I found out after being there, to tear apart the styrofoam plate and make my own spoon and fork, whichever I could use to eat with. During this time, uh, that was, uh, I'm, I'm taking, for example, breakfast. After breakfast was over and the styrofoam plate had been recovered, two guards would come in daily, seven days a week, 
and strip search everyone in the cell, which we had no access to go outside, and make each individual show the guards things that I should not mention on the air. And also that night after what I would call supper time, we were strip searched again. At one point in time, after being asked the same questions over and over and over, by the actually a social worker it wasn't a psychiatrist at all i told her i didn't need her help could she possibly ask me a different question at that time she called the guard over to place me back in my cell that day was my shower day ironically and uh when i went to take my shower and get a fresh suit of clothing with the stripes on it, of course, he handed me a very heavy piece of clothing that represented or looked a lot like a horse's uh, uh, apparel that he would that, that they place on the horses after they warm them up in the morning with Velcro uh, zippers and so forth. Well, I asked him what that was for, and he said, uh, wear it. And, of course, being in jail, what was I going to do in, in, in return but to uh, to wear it? So it didn't fit, and I called. He came back after about five minutes to the shower and said, well, what seems to be the problem? I said, this don't fit me. It's made for a horse. He said, put it on. Another thing that was ironic, from taking those showers, I had acquired sores in my head. They were cold showers, not warm at all, because they pepper sprayed quite a few people that come in there, and pepper spray is a very hot spray, and they could not give them a hot shower. So I had it on, and at that time I had requested a nurse to look at the sores in my head prior to that day. He came back to my cell and said, the nurse is here to see you. He handcuffed me again and put the chains on my ankles, which the nurse wasn't no further than 40 feet from the cell because she was making her rotational visit. And I I told the guard, I said, "Uh, this thing's gonna fall off me and I will not be responsible for my nakedness inside this uh, jail cell. He told me, uh, just shut up and go see the nurse. So I held it on, sir. Yeah, I need you to take a breath because I've got to run a few commercials, but we'll be back. Yes, sir. Don't go away. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. More with Daniel Adair, author of Lost Innocence, Innocence Lost, the true story of a Vietnam vet. All this and more when we come back here. The WIP time, 7.18. And we're back here on 94 WIP with my guest, Daniel Adair, author of the new book, Innocence Lost, The True Story of a Vietnam Vet. My name's Peter Solomon. Daniel, how typical, I mean, there's clearly a lot more to your story that we don't actually have the time. And um, I'll be honest, I don't have the stomach to continue because your story's horrific. It's like a bad horror movie. Um, how typical is your story of many vets who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder? 
I would I would just like to uh, close that portion of jail out and say that she told me not to take a shower and I'd be all right. However, what my main question is, is this the way Vietnam vets with PTSD should be treated after coming back from a, uh, a horrific war of going into the jungles to pull out our brothers, our brothers from dislocation, uh, 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 any horrible thing that could happen in Vietnam happened and then have to live with it the rest of your life and then find out that you could not live with it and be sent to jail to be sentenced to a 15-year second-degree felony for attempted suicide. I, I myself and several people uh, of higher positions than me cannot believe this has happened, but I cannot... It, to this date, I still pay the $52. I still have probation service, and I will be 79 years old until this uh, is eliminated from my book work, you might say. But I just can't believe it, so that's why I wrote the book, to let the American public see what goes on behind closed doors that no one really gets the true uh, effect of, of how veterans are treated. You pay $52 a month for the privilege of being tortured by your government. Well, I paid $52 for a guidance at the age I'm 67 now, a guidance of a probation officer at roughly at the age of 35. What experiences could that probation officer have to guide me through my life to tell me how, how uh, it, it's it's a money-making scheme that the only thing set up is to get their $52. Uh, if Marion County, Florida is that broke that they have to use the veterans of a combat-related war, Iraq, Iran, Vietnam, to pay their bills for them, where has America gone to? Well, Daniel, I will tell you something. Um, in another life, I was a probation parole officer for a whole lot of years. And your story is unfortunately all too typical of what a lot of men and some women, but a lot of men went through. Still there, Daniel? Yes, sir. I'm with okay. you. All right. It's all too typical and all too horrible. What do you want us to do or learn? What, what I want us to do to learn? Mm -hmm. I would say PTSD is real. To learn, uh, why? Why would you? How could you not investigate more into what actually took place at, at, at my sentencing, which I had to take a plea bargain after seven and a half months to get out of jail. My public defender leaned over on my shoulder and whispered to me after the gavel went down, Mr. Adair, I am very sorry. I didn't even have a chance to look over your case. If I would have, I'm sure I could have got this sentence dropped. How does the judicial system operate that can take a person like me and and crucify him the way they did me. This is this is a, a PTSD built 
on top of PTSD. This is not just a, a child going out and stealing a candy bar from the store. This is very severe sentencing, and everyone that I speak to now that knows that I have been sentenced with this looks at me in a different manner. I'm not the same person I was before. They don't look at me that way. They think that I am some baby killer, uh, a rapist. They don't know because they don't know what I was sentenced for. This has destroyed my life. And a horrible story it is indeed. The, the book Innocence Lost describes everything about it, and I would more than for the audience to to read through this book and understand uh, many veterans never write about what took place in, in their in their time and service and I dedicated myself to do this for the public and the veterans uh, possibly to reminisce uh, to a degree but for the American public to see what a soldier actually goes through after he's returned back to the country that he fought for and how he is treated afterwards. And I think it's an important book, too, as we approach the midterm elections, local, state, and federal, and then the November elections as well, to ask candidates what they have to say about situations like yours. And I, I, con I contacted the uh, uh, governor of the state, the attorney general, uh, the president of the United but by contacting what I see is I wrote the letters, and I'm sure they never got to them, but the response that I had back was, we do not work in this situation. This is up to you to uh, eliminate yourself. Now, why should they even be there, and why should they represent the people if you have a problem and they return your letter and this type of response. And I want to say thank you to Daniel Adair, his new book, Innocence Lost, The True Story of a Vietnam Vet. It's an important story. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. And it's yeah. WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.30. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. And I'm pleased to welcome here for my guest, economist, author, Denny McMahon, his, his new book, China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow Banks, Ghost Cities, Massive Loans, and the End of the Chinese Miracle. If we're to believe Washington, we have a massive trade deficit. We import more from China than we export. But what does that mean? Is it true? Well, we're going to ask this of Denny and a whole lot more. Good morning, Denny McMahon. G'day, Peter. Great talking to you. Is it true? Do we have an import-export balance with China? Yeah, absolutely. Um, China exports uh, an incredible amount to, to the United States. Um, but what's really quite interesting is kind of the, the balance of what China exports. So uh, I'm Australian, for example, if you can tell by my accent. Australia has benefited hugely from China's economic growth over the last four decades because the sort of things that China imports from overseas is the sort of stuff that Australia built, um, produces, like iron ore, you know, coal, um, metals and things like that. But what China exports more than anything else of is manufactured goods, um, and they go in, in huge volumes to, to the United States. Okay. But if that's the case, then, 
how has China got a great wall of debt? Okay, well, we tend to think that China's economy is driven by exports. And that was, a, that was a case around the turn of the century, probably up until about 2004, 2005. But what actually drives this fast economic growth that we see in China is investment. And what I mean by that is that China building a lot of stuff at home. So that when I say building stuff, we're talking about a lot of housing, a lot of public works, and a lot of factories. And it's, so what they do is that they borrow a lot of money, China's companies and particularly its local government. They borrow a lot of money from the financial system, which is mainly banks, but a whole lot of shadow banks as well, not hugely dissimilar from the United States' financial system. And then it gets ploughed into building stuff. And that's where all the debt comes from. And that's really what makes their economy so, uh, so fragile. But how is this bad? I mean, if they're building, they're employing people, people are getting salaries, they're spending money. Yeah. I know. It sounds quite good, doesn't it? I mean, particularly if you're building things like, you know, and, and whatnot. Um, the problem is that so that what China China has built just to an extreme degree of excess, and you can actually see the excess as, as you're driving around China. So the sort of stuff I'm talking about is that there's been so much more housing constructed um, in in cities around China than they will ever actually need. Uh, you've got uh, public works, which you know that, that includes infrastructure, and China's made some incredibly good infrastructure over the last decade. But it also means that you know you get a whole lot of airports where you only have one or two flights a week. It means you've got eight-lane highways where you're driving along and you're you're the only uh, only vehicle on it. Or in some cities, you see local governments have spent all this money on sort of ornamental lakes and you know and new office buildings that have more offices than people to put them in. And then at the same time, they've built a whole lot of factories that are capable of, capable of producing stuff far in excess of what China will, will ever need. And so the government itself has a list of what it calls industries with overcapacity. And that includes everything from steel to aluminium, cement, shipbuilding, uh, construction equipment like excavators and front loaders, a paper, plain glass, uh, plain glass. I mean, it's a huge list. And so this is where the problem comes in. They've been building all this stuff, which, you know, in and of itself sounds like a positive, positive thing, but they've built so much that they will never, you know, so much stuff that they'll never need or never use. And in order to keep growing each year on year, they've got to create, they, they have to keep creating more of this waste. But what's the purpose then if it has no consumers on the other end? Yeah. Well, it, it all comes back to this sort of basic growth machine. So this, high, this idea that China needs to grow quickly is kind of baked into, uh, I guess, the, the political psychology of, of China. So well, I guess as outsiders, we typically think that the, the Chinese economy is being directed from the top down from Beijing. Nothing could be further from, from the truth. There's a huge amount of discretion that is in the hands of local governments, and what I mean by that is sort of the guys running the provinces or city mayors or county officials, and also a lot of discretion in the hands of these big state-owned enterprises that are responsible for the biggest steel mills and the biggest aluminium mills. And so the way that these guys, are, the success of their careers as judged is by their ability to stimulate growth. So to give you an example, let's, let's take a, a, a local city mayor. Typically, he might have a tenure of five years, but the way the, the system works is more often than not, he'll be moved on to his next posting after three or four years. So the question is, how is a guy like that supposed to be able to 
prove his worth, to prove that he's good at economic manager, to prove that he can you know, risk, uh, you know, raise the, the economic growth or, or raise the, uh, the, the quality of the economy in the area that he's responsible for, the easiest way is to build something. And so there's this built-in incentive to like, right, we're going to build money today and we're going to build government works, we're going to subsidise factories. And the, and, and the officials that do that, because they're in the role for such a short period of time, they get the economic bump short term, but then ultimately they're not responsible for the risk of the debt down the track. And the central government has been trying to rein this in for, for years. I mean, this big problem, particularly with the local governments, you know, borrowing and building, that really kicked into gear after the global financial crisis. I mean, in some way, that's kind of, it, this is what kind of helped China sail through the global financial crisis with, with any ill effects. And Beijing's been trying to stop it, but the local officials Firstly, they've got so much discretion. And the second thing is they've got creative. So every time Beijing tries to stop them from borrowing one way, sort of the, the financial innovation machine kicks into gear and they come up with new creative ways to, to borrow that are a lot harder to track and a lot harder for, for the leaders in Beijing to be able to manage. Such as? Okay, well, this, this is where things get uh, complicated. So... Traditionally, China's local governments weren't even allowed to borrow at all. Right? So this was because in the, local, in the early 90s, they did. They did borrow a lot of money, and they borrowed too much. It led to inflation. It led to a whole lot of waste. And so the government in Beijing said, look, enough is enough. You're not allowed to borrow. Any money you get can only come from taxes or it comes from us. And then in 2008, because the government wanted to stimulate the economy, it was like, well, you know, the local governments have got a lot of uh, you know, infrastructure projects they want to build. Okay, let's, let's let them, uh, you know, we'll give them a little bit more leeway. So local governments effectively set up, I guess, the, the Chinese equivalent of sort of port authorities and special districts that, that the U.S. has. So these are effectively companies that the government sets up, that local governments set up that can borrow on behalf of local local authorities. And so initially, that's who was doing the borrowing. And so then, you know, they borrowed a lot. They borrowed way too much. Um, and so, be, you know, the government in Beijing said, OK, look, enough is enough, but we've got to rein that in. And so then they suggested, OK, what we want to see is more private investment. So something a lot of, uh, you know, the US and Europe and Australia used to get infrastructure built are things called um, public-private partnerships. So the government puts in a little bit of money and then uh, a private partner puts in a little bit of money. And so this was a way to kind of keep the infrastructure and public works going but with less government debt. Anyway, what happened is the local government sort of came up with ways to disguise where the private money was coming from. And ultimately, it was debt-based, being routed through their special companies and then routed through shell companies. And what was initially looked like public-private partnerships were actually just more debt-fueled public-public um, partnerships. And then the government tried to crack down on that, and the local governments came up with new ways. And it's just been this, this unending cycle of complexity for, for a decade. Hmm. It sounds like at some point the house of cards is going to collapse. Yeah, this is where things get really quite complicated because if you look at China's debt levels at the moment, if this were any other con economy, you'd be definitely uh, sort of watching the clock. So, you know, if you kind of take China's absolute debt levels, you know, the total amount of debt relative to the size of the economy, it's really not that 
different from the United States. It's a bit bigger, but generally not that, that different. But the issue here isn't so much the absolute amount of debt, but it's the pace at which it's accumulated. So um, if you kind of take other countries that have you know, racked up this much, of, this much debt in such a, a short period of time, um, they have invariably experienced financial crises. So for example, um, you know, the, the US prior to the subprime crisis had this sort of very comparable um, rapid accumulation of debt. Not quite as bad as China, but I mean, it's in the ballpark. Uh, Thailand before the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. Spain before the Eurozone crisis. Uh, Japan before the lost decade in the 90s. So on the face of it, yeah, this is really something to worry about. But the, the, the financial system in China works a little bit different from elsewhere in the world. So all financial systems are built on trust. Usually, say, in a place like the US, right, that trust is in each individual bank or each individual financial institution. So you as a depositor, if you don't trust your bank anymore, then you get your money out of there as quickly as possible. Or you take, uh, you know, sort of the, the Lehman moment back in 2008. You know, the other banks lost their faith, lost their trust in Lehman, and so they refused to sort of deal with it anymore. And then sort of that loss of risk cascaded through the system. In China, it's not the important thing isn't the faith in individual institutions. It's the faith, public's faith in the government because it is the government that kind of underwrites the entire system. It underwrites the overall stability of the system. It underwrites the stability of every financial institution. And to be honest, most ordinary Chinese assume that the government is underwriting the safety of every individual financial product that they, they might buy, whether it be a bond or it be some sort of like P2P, peer-to-peer investment. And so um, in some ways that makes the, stability, the system more stable. It can kind of go on a lot longer. But the problem is that it creates uh, this sort of incentive for the risk to continue building because no one thinks they'll ever lose their money. And so we're now at a point where the government itself in Beijing is really starting to try and do whatever it can to kind of stop the debt from growing, stop the complexity from getting worse. But the problem is the growth of the economy depends on more and more debt. So they're kind of in this very diff difficult position at the moment between trying to balance the needs of stability with balancing the needs to keep the economy growing quickly. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, economist, author, Denny McMahon, his new book, China's Great Wall of Debt. My name's Peter Solomon. What's this going to do then with Donald Trump's imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum, two great products of China? Well, that's a, it's a really interesting question because the steel question in particular, the steel tariffs probably aren't going to do a lot to China. Now, that's not because China doesn't export a lot of steel. China exports more steel than the United States produces, um, which is all the more amazing because in 2005, China was still exporting, sorry, importing more steel than it, than it was exporting. So it's really been in the case of the course of a little more than a decade. China has built this massive steel industry. But the thing is, the US has kind of been aware of this problem for a very long time and has sort of been gradually imposing restrictions on China's imports of, of steel. So China doesn't import steel, export much steel to the US at all. The problem is that it exports a lot of steel to other countries. And so it exports that steel to other countries. 
it undercuts the, the price of steel in those countries. And then steel producers in those places then export their steel to the United States. So there's kind of that knock-on effect, that roll-on effect that eventually affects the US. So the tariffs on, on steel aren't going to affect China hugely. But the big issue to watch is the, uh, the Trump administration's uh, investigation into, ch into China's abuses of intellectual property. And the reason that's so important is because China's at a point at the moment where it's facing a lot of economic challenges, and it's not just the debt. And we can get into these other challenges in a minute. But its vision for how it's going to transform its economy is that, you know, China produces a lot of cheap manufactured goods, produces a lot of heavy industry goods like steel and ships and aluminium. But the way of the future is that it's going to have to move into more technologically advanced manufactured goods. And so the industries that it's really trying to promote at the moment are things like robotics, uh, semiconductors, electric vehicles, and it's using a lot of the same techniques in which it's uh, developed its steel industry producing a lot of subsidies, giving these industries a lot of subsidies, a lot of local market protection. Um, and it's also doing what it, whatever it can to acquire intellectual property. So, uh, for example, with semiconductors, the Chinese government has put, put aside tens of billions of dollars to help Chinese companies go overseas and buy cutting-edge companies that are producing uh, semiconductor technology. And at the same time, I mean, foreign companies can't go to China and build and buy comparably good companies. The, the, the government in Beijing just wouldn't let them. And so this is kind of the area where, uh, you know, where uh, tariffs or efforts by the U.S. to kind of push back on China's trade practices can have a really big impact because these are the industries where China sees its future, but it's also, plays, it's also industries that are actually really important to the United States. And it's here that the U.S. actually has a lot of natural allies around the world, both in Japan and Europe. Um, the Germans in particular are very worried about Chinese companies coming in backed by cheap credit, uh, subsidised loans, backed by government funding, and coming in and buying their top te technology companies. I think it was last year that uh, the German government blocked the acquisition of a, of a major robotics company by a Chinese firm because they were really worried about sort of, sort of this trend. And so, yeah, aluminium and steel tariffs probably aren't going to have a huge impact, but it's on the more technically advanced industries that we, that we might really see uh, having a, a big impact on China. Well, let me ask a more practical question, if you will. I have a very good friend who collects miniatures, miniature furniture and things for dollhouses. Um, a lot of that stuff's made in China. What are the implications for that stuff? I don't think there's, in terms of what the US is doing, yes. I don't think there are any implications. However, there are bigger economic forces at work that go beyond uh, sort of this, this incipient trade war. And that is China's, the basic foundations of China, putting the debt aside for a minute, the basic foundations of China's economy is changing. I mean, China, China's great competitive advantage, the, way we th the reason we think that China is such a, such a strong economy is because it's cheap. It's a cheap place to make stuff, right? But that's no longer the case, and that competitiveness has been declining for the last few years. So I'll give you an example that I write about in my book. Um, I met a, a Chinese entrepreneur based in Zhejiang province, and Zhejiang province is like, it's really China's heart of entrepreneurialism. But this guy sort of, he started off his career working for a state-owned company that made chemicals, 
And when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, he sort of went out on his own and he bought a whole lot of machines and he set up a textile company. And specifically what he does is he takes cotton and he spins it into yarn, then sells that yarn to people who make cloth, right? Anyway, so I met him in about 2013 because he was planning a massive expansion of his factory. But the thing is, he wasn't doing it in Georgia. He was boxing up his machines and shipping them to South Carolina. And the reason was, and he said that to me at this time, he said, look, Dinny, this industry doesn't have a future in China. It's just too expensive to produce here. And his issues were, firstly, land. So if he wanted to expand, he needed more land, and the cost of land in China has just gone through the roof, um, and it was just a lot cheaper to acquire the land in South Carolina. The other big issue was energy. Energy costs in the U.S., he worked out, if by producing in the U.S., his energy bill would go down two-thirds. Um, uh, another big thing for him was the price of cotton. Cotton in the United States is produced so much more efficiently and cheaply than it is in China. But in producing in China, he has to deal with a quota system. So he has to buy Chinese cotton first, and then, then once he's used up a quota, then he can get some, some American cotton. Um, but the big thing, so China's cost rising. You've got energy, land. Another big thing that affects other industries is environmental compliance costs. Once upon a time, China didn't care about the cost of the environment. But now it's really imposing rules on factory emissions because the toll on the environment has been so great. So, you know, China's not so cheap to manufacture anymore. But the big issue is the cost of workers. It's the cost of labour. So, you know, this guy moving to South Carolina, it's still a lot more expensive to hire American workers than it is Chinese. But the gap has been closing aggressively. When he first started thinking of moving in about 2010, it was still too expensive. But he reckoned the gap had halved by 2013, and he reckons it was on, a, on, on track to halve again by about 2000, uh, this year, actually. So the reason that's happening is twofold. Right? So traditionally, I mean, journalists like myself spent years writing about the endless supply of labour coming from China's countryside moving to cities. Well, as it turns out, that supply wasn't endless after all, and it's, it's fast ending. The supply, the, the, the flow of people moving from the country to, to the city to take up factory jo jobs is slowing to a trickle. The second issue is that China's population is very, very, is aging extremely quickly. It's one of the fastest aging populations in the world. And this is the direct fallout of the one-child policy. So we're going to, already over the last few years, the working age population has been shrinking. And we're going to find that over the next decade, that's going to drop by tens of millions of people. And that has some real effects. So firstly, it will drive salaries up, which will make China a less competitive place to manufacture things. And there's other burdens as well, because it means that the government's going to have, have to redirect resources uh, into uh, providing services for, for retirees. So the economic balance isn't looking great for China at the moment. And so going back to your miniature furniture, you know, given those rising costs, I wouldn't be surprised in the next few years if your friend starts uh, finding that that miniature furniture is being made in somewhere like perhaps Vietnam or yeah. Bangladesh or East Africa because it's cheaper to do it than China. Interesting. And I'd like to say thank you to journalist, author, economist, Danny McMahon. His new book, China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow banks, ghost cities, massive loans, 
and the end of the Chinese miracle. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.